So it's interesting, uh, this morning, I want to share with you a, a picture. And this is called The Sower. Who's seen this? It's Van Gogh, or if you're a snob, Van Gogh, or whatever people, there's snobby people that yell at me every time I pronounce it. This is an amazing picture. I believe it was at the Hyde Museum in Glens Falls at one point, in the, where they have some, some Van Gogh uh, stuff. It's a really neat image, and it's just a man or woman sowing seeds in a field. You can see the birds soaring by, by and the, the sun. I would assume the sun is rising. It could be setting. But this is, this idea of being a sower is a pretty persistent image in the Bible. It talks about sowing and reaping, harvest. And we are pretty far removed from the agrarian farmer context, and so sometimes those things are lost on us. But if you're a farmer, you know, you, you do your best. You plant your crops. You hope for good weather. You hope for the right amount of water, the right amount of sunshine. But ultimately, the only thing you can do is, with the best of, to the best of your ability, plant the seeds the right way at the right time. And then you need to pretty much trust God, if you're, if you're a believer, or just trust the fates if you're not, I suppose. Uh, but this is something people understand. And, and uh, people that were part of the agrarian times and were farmers in the Bible situation, you know, they had to have a great deal of faith in God to provide for them because they could not control their income as well as many of us can. And not all of us control our income very well either. But it was very volatile. They could lose everything in a, in a bad storm. But this is a picture of something that God calls us to do, to sow uh, and to trust him for a, a harvest, to sow intentionally. And over the next couple of weeks, I want to take this image of the sower and look at it in regard to uh, several different things in our lives. Um, so, with this image in mind, let's read this, this passage together from 1 Corinthians 3. And I would like you to, just as we read along together, just be listening and seeing, uh, seeing what this passage is saying, and we'll kind of talk about it when we're done with it. So uh, the, the context, you, you can probably derive from just reading the, reading the text itself, but here in 1 Corinthians, once again, this is the same church that was getting drunk off the Lord's table, so they're not the, they're not the greatest right now. They're, God's working on them, but let's remind ourselves we're not the greatest either. God's working on us. Uh, there's a lot to be done, so uh, let's not get too proud. But here in a, is a church where there's a cult of personality. Some people say, oh, I'm with this pastor. No, I'm with that pastor. Oh, I like this guy. I hate it when that guy speaks. You know, it's like, we, oh yeah, we don't like it when that person shares. We don't like it when that person leads worship. Petty kind of stuff that humans do, uh, apart from God and also in the church, because we're all still prone to wander in the church. Let's see what Paul has to say into this situation. Talks about sowing and reaping. 1 Corinthians 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? So Paul has some strong thoughts about this behavior. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants 
through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become quote-unquote fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So what do you think? What's the main point that he's making in this passage? We're all seeds. So seeds God's planted, God's using. God is ultimately in control of everything. So if you like the fruit of someone's ministry, that's God's work. You know? What else? Without God, you can do nothing. That is true. That is true. Look at God and not men or women. Um, that's right. If Jesus is not your foundation, your house will end up falling. Yeah, these are all it's good preaching, you guys. Anything else? That's right. Don't envy and compete with one another because if you destroy the church, you're destroying the temple. <laughs> right? So these are good lessons for, for the Corinthians. And I, I like, just really quick, I didn't even plan this, but it's really cool how Paul says, uh, don't you know you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? This is a huge encouragement to us. Because this Corinthian church did not, they had some problems. They had problems with the Lord's table. They had problems with sexual immorality, serious problems. They had problems with fighting and quarreling. Yet, because of the grace of God, he allowed his spirit to dwell among them. And that's something that we can never take for granted. Just because God's presence is with us doesn't mean we have it all together. It means that God is super, super good. And his goodness and his kindness are amplified as we realize, wow, God is with us. God's moving. Um, but there are still things we can work on, <laughs> you know, because 
we didn't earn that. It's something that God decided to give us by his grace. So that's the idea of the sower. One of us sows, another waters. People bring in the harvest, but God is the one that makes it grow. So any fruit we see in our church or any other church or ministry, you know, it's to be credited to God. But we have this divine partnership with God where he has called us to join him in the sowing process. There are, there are seeds that we need for sowing. Where do we get them from? We'll talk about that this week and next week. Uh, there is there's a way that we partner with God. And just like, just like that image where we, uh, where we go in the field and we plant these seeds, but ultimately it's God that makes them grow. So we're going through a, a series, as, as most of you know, called Mission 119. We're reading through the Bible in just under two years. We are 22% complete as of this morning. So those of you who are reading through the Bible with us, you're 22% complete. Uh, we are going to be starting week 22, day one tomorrow. So if you want to jump in, just jump in with us. We're going to be looking at Acts 18 through 22 and First and Second Thessalonians this week. Uh, but a, few, a couple weeks ago, in week 19, day two, uh, I read this. I heard John Soper's commentary, which accompanies the reading, and he's talking about our stuff. One of the things we sow is our finances. It is our what we produce in the world. And in the, in the biblical language, they called it a tithe in Numbers 18. It ten, means 10% of what you have. And the idea is the first and the best of what you have. So it says in Numbers 18, 25, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Levites and say to them, When you receive from the Israelites the tithe, the 10% they're giving, I give you as your inheritance. You must present a tenth of that tithe as the Lord's offering. So that was one thing that made me think, well, it's really interesting. It's talking about, you know, people's literally having these seeds, which is the finances God's given them. Everything, 100% of what we have belongs to God, but he's called us to give this top 10%, literally our first and our best to him. Then in week 20, day one, I was talking to some of you about this passage. In Numbers 28 and 29, it talked about sacrifices and feasts that were commanded of the people of Israel. And John Soper, the person who's doing the comment, commenting, talked about how incredibly costly all of this livestock and all of these sacrifices were and how it would have seemed very insurmountable to the people. So you can look at it that way. But the amazing message hidden in that teaching of like give this many, give this much, give this, is that God planned on blessing this people greatly. God had plans to give them so much livestock, so much grain, so much oil, so much wine, they pretty much wouldn't even know what to do with it. And the, te- the, the amount that he was asking back for was so small compared to the huge amount of blessing they poured out on them. And this is, that's a really good point, because you could read that and say, well, God's really being, you know, mean, asking for so much from people. You can look at it negatively. But he re- John Soper re- revealed how positive it is that God's planning on blessing this people in a huge way. But one thing that cannot be refuted is, giving of our stuff, our treasure, what we make at work, uh, is worship. And God desires the worship of his people. He desires it regularly. Uh, If you look at the way sacrifices worked in the Old Testament, uh, God's idea was, here, you're doing this twice a day, you do this at this time, you do this during this festival. God desires regular sacrificial giving from his people. And uh, 
it's something that really hasn't changed. God still desires the sacrificial worship of his people in our, in our actual stuff. Um, just because Jesus came, it doesn't mean that giving has ceased to be uh, necessary or even something that pleases God. It's an actual part of our worship that pleases God greatly. Our prayers, our songs, taking the Lord's Supper like we did today, our praises, our faith stories, sermons, conversations, encouragements to one another, and our giving are a, are a sweet-smelling aroma to God, just like they were in the, in the Old Testament. God has not changed. The amazing thing, at looking at numbers in Mission 119, is that God took into account people that were poor and people that were rich. And he basically said, for poor folks, give 10%. That's going to be a lot less than the rich folks who have, who have a, a lot more money to give 10%. But, the, but for whether you were poor or whether you were rich, it was a sacrifice. You know? It was a sacrifice that God was calling his people to. And it was about their hearts. Worship in the Old and New Testament is costly. And, it, and it's meant to be costly because it's something that it's a worship that God desires from us and ultimately he's after our hearts. So in the, in the Old Testament, the first time we see this idea of tithing was when Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And it seemed to be something that had been established from a long time ago, uh, maybe all the way from the beginning, something that was established. But the idea of the tithe throughout the Old Testament is that the first and best of what God has given us, one-tenth, is God's portion. And this was an established principle in the Old Testament church. Now, the word tithe is not in the New Testament in regard to a command of what we're supposed to do. Um, and because it's not in the New Testament, many people kind of ignore it or kind of gloss over it. And many times we don't think about it. But it's something that, just because it's not said, it's something that God, I believe God still expects as a baseline from his people. It was, never, it was never said that people should stop tithing, and certainly Jesus' sacrifice on the cross did not cover our tithes so we don't have to give generously to God anymore. That doesn't make any sense. It's something that God's always desired of his people and always has been a part of worship. And I want you to know that as your pastor, this for me is not about the church budget. Because we're fine. This is not about giving to New Life Fellowship. It's not one of those messages that's meant to be like, okay, we're, we're in the hole. We really need people to start giving. This is about your hearts. And, and whether you're going to be withholding from God this huge part of your life, or whether you're going to open yourself to him. If the, if the amount of giving of this church didn't change, you know, whatever. This is about the heart. This is about our worship to God. And, uh, and, and when we don't bring God what he's asking of us, that's, a that's not a good thing. And, it, and it's incomplete worship. So, uh, sometimes, if we're not careful, we, we look at giving to God financially as, okay, God, you get the leftovers. After we've paid our bills, after we've got, bought the things that we want, after we've spent most of the cash in our wallet, whatever couple bucks we have left over, here's your leftovers, God. And that's a very incomplete picture of giving. 
Everything belongs to God. And so the first and the best needs to go back to him. Though it doesn't use the word tithe in the New Testament, um, Jesus talks about giving. He says, give, it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Um, I don't preach a prosperity gospel. I don't believe you give God money to get money or anything like that. It's an act of obedience to God. But listen, with the measure you use, we measure to you. So if you're giving God your leftovers, and then you think of God as your provider, I don't know how those things reconcile exactly. Um, Paul calls us to be generous in 2 Corinthians, the, the exciting sequel from 1 Corinthians. And this is about sowing and reaping. Remember this, says Paul, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. This is the law of sowing and reaping. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. See, Paul's desire is not to be legalistic, not to say you have to give this much or that much. But you should sow generously, he says. And you should decide beforehand what you're going to give to God as your act of worship. That's, that's not the leftovers. That's what we've decided to do as a family, as an individual, as a household. And to do it with cheerfulness, with joy, not under compulsion. To give that 10%, you know, seems difficult. Uh, and sometimes unreasonable to us. Yet God says in Malachi, uh, this is a passage about giving. And he says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, pour out so much blessing, there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. The idea of robbing the Lord of our, of our giving might seem like a small thing when you consider what you're presently giving the Lord, I guess, unless you're already giving you know, at least 10% sent to the Lord. Um, but if you were to actually give 10% of your income to God, this is what robbery would look like for my family. For Jackie and I on a single income in Saratoga Springs with four kids at our current income, we would have robbed God of over $20,000 over a three-year period if we withheld our tithe from him. That's just a fact. That's just math. Um, and that's right around, the that's a little bit more than the 10% mark because we also uh, give to the Great Commission for the CMA. And it's a sacrificial giving. Um, and that, when you think about $20,000 over a three-year period, 
means over a six-year period, $40,000. I mean, it ends up being a very large number, <laughs> eventually. That we're ro we're like, if you stole $20,000 every three years from, like, NBT Bank, you'd be in big trouble. That's like a major felony. It's <laughs> a lot of money. And when, I, when God says, you are robbing me of your tithe, it's like, that's, it can be significant even on a single income. So one of the reasons I give to God is because I want him to know that I serve him and not my money. The Bible says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's pretty much one of the only mutually, mutually exclusive things I've seen where it says you, you can't do these two things at once. You can't put your trust in money, in horses, in chariots, in wealth, in, in your support system, whatever it might be, and then say, I trust in God. You know, ultimately, you're trusting in your bank account. So, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. And for me, you know, when we, knowing that every week my bank sends our 10% right off the top to the church, you know, I know in my heart that God is the Lord of my life. Because you know what? That 10% could be used for A, B, C, and D. But he gets my first and my best because he's worthy. That's how I feel about it. This is very personal, I guess. You can't serve both in God and money, so we give because we want God to know that we serve him and not the money. Another reason is that when we get unexpected bills coming in, uh, for instance, a couple months ago, we had to replace my car's radiator, and then the alternator went, and then the, the belt went, and then Jackie's transmission had to be rebuilt. We ended up having to, to shell out almost $2,000 for those repairs. And when that kind of unexpected and dire expense comes up, I have the privilege of praying to God and saying, God, you know we trust you with our money because we gave you our first and our best. Please take care of us. If I didn't give God my 10%, what right would I have to pray a prayer like that? It's like, for all I know, God is like disciplining me with those, with those kinds of costs, you know, if I'm not giving. But if I'm giving, God's going to provide. And God has provided for our family in surprising ways over the years as we've committed to give him our first and best. I want to be able to have this transparent relationship with God where I'm not lurking in the shadows like, oh, something terrible happened that's financially devastating. But I can't talk to God because I'm already disobedient and not following him anyway. So that's, a, that's not a good place to be. That's another reason that we give. Um, and that's highly personal. That's our honest thoughts as a couple. And finally, we give a tithe to God because someday our family will stand before him. And we will be called to account for what God's given us. And the truth is, God will call us to account for 100% of the possessions he's loaned to us and the money because it all belongs to him. But when I stand before God, I don't want to have this massive amount of money that I've robbed from him. When you think about it, like, if you follow Jesus for like 60 or 70 years, if you're lucky, I mean, God's like, so, about the money. <laughs> you robbed me of like $700,000, which is like a modest income is what you'd be robbing God of over that long period of time. I don't want to be in that position. Not because I think that I'm saved by my money, I, I think I'm saved by grace, and I'll say, well, Jesus covers that, and he'll be like, yes, Jesus does cover that, and welcome to, you know, you, you're saved as one passing through the flames, as it says in 2 Corinthians, right? The passage we read. Uh, but 
certainly. Um, how can you stand before God, which we all will, and say, this is what we did with the stuff you gave us? I'd feel really weird about that. <laughs> um, it's not just the tithe, but that tithe represents something bigger. And it's our lack of ability to, or willingness to worship God by giving him our first and our best. It speaks to a deeper truth. God, I love you, I serve you somewhat, but I don't trust you. There is another God who I trust. It is my self-sufficiency and my bank account. And that's how I, I really feel. So, again, this is not about church fundraising. This is about your heart before God. And I know that these kinds of sermons can sometimes make people feel shame and guilt over past withholding from God. There was a time period where I withheld my tithe from God, and I was under constant, I was under constant light uh, chastisement internally, knowing that that was wrong. And I repented, and now I have peace. And that's really cool. But uh, there's grace for everybody in this. Uh, but it is a challenge that we've received from God. God says in, in Malachi, test me and see if I won't bless you for obeying my word. I'm here to say, God has blessed my family for obeying his word in this way. If tithing is not something you're already practicing, prayerfully consider and experiment in obedience. Uh, like Malachi says, test God on this. It's the only time, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test in the Bible. Then God says, except for this one way, test me on this thing. So I think that he gives us an exception and says, I know this is hard for you people. You love your money. Test me on it though. Um, take God at his word and put him to the test. Again, not get rich quick scheme, no promise like that. It's a matter of obedience and God, my God will meet all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. God has met all of our needs. And if we be, begin to obey the word of God in this matter, if we give our tithes to the local storehouse, um, God will begin to bless us in ways we have not previously known, whether it be uh, financially or otherwise, or just having the peace of knowing that God is the God of your life, your whole life, including your finances. Um, it's a tremendous thing. So as, as we close here, I, just, I do challenge you to, to put the Lord to the test. <laughs> to start giving God your first and your best. Commit um, to what you're going to give to him beforehand. Don't do it under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. And see how your relationship with God changes and benefits from it, how your heart does. Uh, it's a tremendous thing to not be a slave to money and fear that it brings. It's a tremendous thing to be able to ask God for help because you know you've been faithful with the small bit he's given. And this is one aspect of sowing uh, that we think about. The first and the best, our money. Next week, we're going to be looking at several other areas in which we sow. They're not uh, finance-related. Uh, but there is a, a mission that God's called us to. It's a partnership with his Holy Spirit where we get these seeds and we, we spread them and we partner with God and see them grow and bear fruit in our lives. So I just encourage you uh, to think about this and pray about this. And please join me in prayer as we close today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are, you own the cattle on a thousand hills, which is something we don't understand unless we think about it. It's a lot of uh, wealth. You own everything. We thank you for the testimony that was shared today of your provision in, in my life with Jackie and the way that you have blessed us as we have followed you in this way. I thank you for the many testimonies each of us has heard of your provision and your grace. I pray that you would speak to each person that's part of this church body and uh, help them to Help them to put you to the test. 
I never thought I'd pray that, Lord. Let them put you to the test. And let's see what you do in our lives. Let's see what you do in our hearts. Let's see what you do in our relationships, in our church. God, make us a generous people who are always ready to help other people to give to you because we are not enslaved by fear. We are free from the bondage that comes with money and wealth management. Um, Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Let us leave this place different than we came. If there's any way in which uh, there's confusion, I pray that you bring clarity on this issue. It's one that's near and dear to all of our hearts and uh, easy to identify with, hard to grapple with sometimes. But Lord, give us grace for this journey. And uh, we thank you for the cross of Jesus and for the provision that you've made for us into our account. That not only is our sin canceled out, but we've been given all of the righteousness, the wealth of Jesus' holiness in our bank account so that we can walk before you with a clear conscience and in full joy and freedom. Uh, We lift up the rest of our day. Let us honor you on this day. Um, In Jesus' name, amen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church.